Good morning. I can smell it in the air. I teased it last week, but I, I can tell you I'm smelling turkey. Is it just me? I don't think it is. I don't think it's just me. I'm get, the older I get, the more excited I get about these kinds of things. It's so funny. Before, you know, as a kid, you're like, turkey? Squash? Are you kidding? Now I'm getting excited. I look forward to our family gatherings. In the small family, uh, I, I do acknowledge how blessed I've been. I'm married into the right family, for one. Um, you know, my wife's family does these things big. You know, they... There's so many people. You, you think the small family is just big because we decided to have lots of kids. It's part of the DNA. My wife's the oldest of six, and so she was just used to like raising up these little ones in a sense. And she did a pretty good job. One of them turned out to be Pastor Gary. So, uh, so. You know, and if you want to know, like her, her dad's a pastor down in Portland, so we all kind of get in, now we have to get in two cars, head down there, and um, because we used to have the big missionary van, I referred to it as the missionary van, it was the one that sat 12 people, because when I was young and in church, anytime a missionary came through town, he brought in six or seven kids and they had a gigantic van, so when we got one, I said, I can't believe I'm getting the missionary van. <sighs> so anyway, that's besides the point. We head down the road and we're going to Mimeo and Bumpa's house. We're not to their house, actually. We go to their church because the gathering's too big. So they have a, 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 a one of the rooms in there, like kind of like what we have, a multi-purpose center or something. They have one of the rooms dedicated. We have 50 or so. I don't know how many people there. And we get in a line and we have our paper plates and we're slopping on our all our turkey dinner and all that kind of stuff. And what often that means often that we don't have any leftovers to take home. Because it all gets gobbled up or something. You know, when it's at your house, you get to eat stuff the next day. When it's not at your house, you don't get to. So that's the only downside. But for the most part, we go there and it's just, it's, it's chaos, it's pandemonium, it's happy, it's joyful. Uh, the kids are all like sitting around. There's like 40 of them, it seems like, all around little short tables having a blast seeing their cousin. So I know I'm very blessed. I have every reason to look forward to the holiday season. And, and you should see what happens at Christmas. Pastor Gary and, and Chelsea have this room in the back of their house. It's like really, really big. And we fill it. And then there's presents everywhere. And then turns into uh, uh, wrapping paper fights that the kids don't start. It's Pastor Gary, it's Pastor Matt and their father. And they whip them across and people lose eyes. It's great. It's just a lot of fun. So the holidays for the small and Willette families and other families, it's just a blast. It's a great thing. And so when I think of getting ready for this season, it's a lot of joy. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot to look forward to. I know that isn't the case for everybody. I know some are walking into situations that you would rather avoid. If I didn't have to go, I wouldn't. And then some of you are somewhere in between. Oh, I'll go, but the turkey better be good because that's about the only thing worth going for. You know, there's just, there's various spectrums we have in all of this stuff. And, and most of our life is, is, is uh, uh, wrapped up in some form of conflict. Most of our life is anticipating, I wonder what's around the corner. I don't know if I can, if I can engage in this. I don't know if I can deal with this. So let me just ask you a, a question about our culture. I have a tendency to want to ask these kinds of things. How do you think culture is doing handling conflict? I mean, it's really, I mean, it's the easiest question in the world to ask, right? Not well. 
But, you know, if, if, if we could count, I didn't do this, but if we could count the number of titles of books that have been written about solving conflict, if we could add up the hours spent in negotiation rooms and in cabinet meetings and all these other kinds of things about political conflict and solving the problems in the Middle East and all of these other things, you think we would have come to some solutions by now with all of the effort we put into dealing with conflict. We've been saying phrases forever like compromise is king or um, uh, 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 time heals all wounds. If I just sweep this under the rug and let it go long enough, eventually it'll work itself out. Or this is one of my favorites. Uh, for those of you that are trying, we need to forgive and forget. How do those things work? We have certain tendencies in how we respond to conflict, how we deal with conflict, how we engage in it. A lot of those tendencies for some of us look like maybe we avoid it altogether. So I, I just isolate myself because it's not worth the effort. Or I accommodate. I'm a little bit more of that kind of people-pleasing person where if someone's not happy with me or they're not excited about something I've done or said, how can I capitulate? How can I just give in and cave? Because I hate the feeling of having someone against me. Or maybe I'm going to work real hard for a compromise. There's got to be a win-win in this. And as long as we both walk away feeling like we've accomplished something, gotten pieces of our own way, then I feel like that was a success. Or maybe I'm the type of person who will not lose this one. I'm going to compete. I'm diving in head first because this is an exciting opportunity to see if I can get my way. We have all different kinds of tendencies. Some of us have a blend of some of those things, but for the most part, we all fall down into some of those categories, our typical responses. Here's the Here's the reason why we've got to talk about this this morning in the context of 2 Corinthians 7, where we'll be going in a little bit. Because ha conflict happens to all of us. Ever since the fall in the garden, our world has been wrapped up in conflict. We cannot avoid it. And our typical responses to conflict leave lingering damage that builds over years and it, and it, and it gnaws us. It's like scar tissue that we can still feel the aches and pains when the weather changes or if I've exercised a particular uh, muscle or a joint, so I can still feel the lingering effects of that. That's what our response to conflict builds in our life over time. I want to ask you to just use your imagination for a second. And ask yourself the question, what would my holiday season look like this year if I learned some different things about what the Lord says about the conflict that I'm going to face? I know the conflict that I can't avoid, the conflict that I'm going to endure. If the Lord really got a hold of my heart and changed my thinking and gave me a new approach, how could this year, how could the, the holiday season of 2019 look different than it has maybe for the last year, the last several, maybe even the last couple of decades for some of us? In order to find peace in this life, you and I are going to have to aim higher than just avoiding conflict, this fantasy that we often generate in our life. If I could just find the relationship that is conflict-free, then I'm good. It won't happen. Amen? Paul is going to be giving us a peek through the window of conflict done right. He's going to show us, he has been showing us now for six chapters of how to approach conflict, how to build unity, how to uh, arrive at a conclusion that is beneficial for both sides, but it's more beneficial for the cause of Christ. 
So Paul has given us this window and he says, look inside. I'm showing you by writing this letter what happened between me and the Corinthian believers. Now, last week's message, um, Pastor Ben, I think, so aptly and, and effectively walked us through the blessing that Titus was to Paul. You remember, as we got into chapter 7, Titus arrives for Paul's encouragement at, at kind of just the right time. And I think it's important, and we won't have much time to talk about this, but imagine the scenario. Paul is sending a letter to people he's got to do business with. He's got to confront them. He's got to, he's got to, he's got to tear down the bad behavior so that he can build them up, and he's got to do it really aggressively. This is the letter that we've lost. This is, this is what could have been 2 Corinthians that was not found, and it's probably for really good reason why we didn't. Not because it was, had mistakes or anything, but, but it, it creates a different point for us to be able to see Paul's follow-up. He sends this letter. He calls it the painful letter to correct these things, and it's not like when we're getting text messages. When, nowadays, when we don't get a response right away, we start to go, what's wrong, Right? Paul had to wait a long time for a response. He sends Titus to go do the work. And then Titus doesn't show up when he's supposed to show up. He's not where he's supposed to be. And so Paul, this is why 2 Corinthians is referred to as Paul's most personal letter. Because you can see the anguish and the agony. Because he cares about these people. He's human in the sense that he cares about their reaction. And he's starting to, in, in kind of a godly way, he's starting to freak out a little bit about it. I wonder how they took it. I wonder if they're okay with this. Paul's fatherly care or his regret for having to send the painful letter is going to come through in our text this morning. What I loved about what Pastor Ben walked us through last week is um, as we were approaching this part of the of the text and, and Pastor Ben and I do some handoffs with the text and things is we talk about it and we kind of talk about what we think the angle of the text is getting at. And, 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 and I thought that Pastor Ben's experience in New Jersey would be a perfect description of some of the things that Paul's talking about. And see, Pastor Ben's humble. He's not going to get up here and whine about his experiences uh, leading a church that wouldn't accept him. And so I had to kind of say, I think people need to hear this a little bit. Why don't you say it? And, and I found it to be very, very powerful. And I'm so glad that he shared that with us because, and I love the point that he said that when he got to the point where he said, now Titus didn't have to be anything special. He just had to be there. And he encouraged us to consider being a Titus, be present in somebody's life, to arrive at just the right time, be available to encourage somebody's spirit. So I thought that uh, that, that was a great setup for where we are today. Paul is going to talk about how they uh, arrive at true restoration, but he's going to be very honest, as we expect him to be, as we get into this text. Now, we're jumping halfway through a paragraph here in verse 8. Um, and so, uh, if you'll recall from last week, he was saying how, uh, at, at my wits end at my uh, lowest point of discouragement, that's when Titus arrives. So I was very excited to hear that it went well. And so we pick up in verse eight, actually, let me, let me just say a couple things before we get there. I get you all excited. That was a trick. I put that in my notes, trick them at this point. I did not. I made a terrible blunder is what that is. Paul is going to address something that we would see out of Luke 17.3, where Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. It's the simplicity of that formula. If you can see that there's sin in your brother or your sister's life, rebuke him. And if they repent, 
Forgive them. Jesus, come on. I, I think you should make it a little more complicated than that. No, it's very simple. Correct them, forgive them. So what Paul is going to give us a window here beginning in verse 8 is that, that confrontation, this is a biblical principle, that confrontation is often painful. And Paul is going to say, he has said in that letter that we lost, what needed to be said. He was willing to risk uh, the, the short-term pain that comes with the conflict of butting heads with his friends for the long-term gain that comes with giving glory to the Lord in their relationships. Now, he wasn't eager or happy to do this. We're going to see this when he says things like, I had to send that painful letter. Or when we dive into verse 8 right here where he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did. I love the honesty. Not, this is interesting because you can't erase what you're typing when you're writing Paul's letter. He's, he's writing and he's like, it's committed, it's there. So he says, I don't regret it, though I have to admit to you, I did regret it at first. I hated the way it felt coming out. I hated the way I imagined how you would be receiving it. But I don't regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul thought that it was worth confronting the poor behavior of the Corinthian believers for, for several different reasons. One key one we're going to get to at the end of the text that I, that I, I was caught off guard by and very surprised and pleasantly surprised to find in the text. But I think it's important for us as we come into this season, as we come into these relationships that we have, we start figuring out how are the better ways that I'm supposed to conduct myself when needing to confront others. And so I thought what I would do is share some principles, some kind of, you know, we're flying by this a little bit. We don't have the typical notes that we have in your bulletin, but there's room to write some of these things down. I'll try not to be too, too quick, though this morning is our advanced Sunday. So I'll be trying to wrap up a little bit early so that we can yield our time for the ladies to stay in this room, for our men to go out in the hub so that we can hear a challenge from God's word um, for, for both of those groups. When uh, entering into confrontation. Several of these things I'm getting from a book that I've just been so blessed by over the years. If you're looking for a title, something to, to read in these regards, it's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Last name is S-A-N-D-E. Well worth whatever it costs, although by now you should probably be able to get it pretty cheap. It's been in print for a long time. Extremely helpful. He would ask several questions in these aspects of our relationship. Is the behavior of the other person dishonoring God? As I'm debating whether or not to engage, if I'm debating whether or not to confront, is it dishonoring God? We can answer that. Anything that offends us that we don't like, we could say, yes, that dishonors God. But we have to balance that with God's patience. He, 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 he shows great patience for a lot of the things that our quirks are, or our inconsistencies are. But the basic question, is this dishonoring God? Is it damaging your relationship? For that, I would say that you need to consider the length of time or how often the, ref- the offense is repeated. Some, some things we can get over. Some things we can say, I'm just going to sweep this. I'm going to move on. It's not going to affect me. But then some things we go, this is just really sticking with me a bit. I don't know how to get over this. I don't know how to stop thinking about this. The answer to the question would be, it's starting to damage your relationship. Is it hurting others? For some of us, we have a really hard time confronting anything. Who am I to say? I don't even know if I'd have the words. What, what awakens something within us is when we come to the defense of somebody else who's getting taken advantage of. 
when we see that somebody else is getting hurt by somebody's behavior, we step in and we say, that's not right. I can't, I can't just keep observing this and not say something about it. And lastly, a helpful question is to ask is, is it hurting the offender? The person that's engaged in the sin, the person that's conducting the behavior, are they self-inflicting wounds that they're causing? Are they destroying relationships around them that they're blind to? They don't realize that they're, that they're doing that. We need to step in. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse, though, are the kisses of an enemy. You and I, when we're engaging in conflict, when we're going to somebody, when we're trying to sort through our issues, it would be important to do several things. And the first I would encourage you to is choose your words carefully. We feel like the missing ingredient in all of our relationships is poor communication. And what we often supply as a response says we need to communicate more, which means talk more. But what we end up doing is venting rather than choosing our words carefully. Not all communication is verbal. And so we would be encouraged to choose our words carefully. Proverbs 11. The Proverbs are full of so many helpful uh, tools and principles on how to use our tongue or how not to. Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. We're not talking about staying silent forever. We're talking about pausing. Talking about reflecting, we're talking about before I engage, before I just vent what I want to get off my chest, is this right, is it helpful, will it encourage or build up? I would encourage you to talk to the person, this is so important in church, talk to the person, not about them. We, we have no problem talking about the situation, the tension, the offenses that people have done to us, we just have a huge problem talking to it, talking about it to them. We want to share it with everybody else. But confrontation, the kind that the Bible would encourage us to, that God's glory is seen in, is we go to the person, not about them. Make a plan to build up and not tear down. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by this. Because I think often we're guilty of blowing smoke. We're kind of, we, we throw, we lob empty compliments and everything. You guys are really great people. Or I just think you dress so well. And then you're just kind of like, oh, I'd like to wring their neck. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but what? The whole point of Ephesians 4 is this put off, put on principle. If God is going to ask us to stop doing something that's unhealthy, unholy, he's going to give us its replacement, the better thing to replace it with. So Ephesians 4.29 is summing up a lot of this. Let no corrupt talk, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. I love that little phrase as fits the occasion because now I'm not just going to throw empty compliments in order to keep the peace. I'm building up, I'm encouraging in a fitting way based on what the occasion is that, that it may give grace to those who hear. I know we're moving through the application of this pretty quickly. Don't have a lot of stories in between, but I'm hoping this is hitting home for some of you because of what you're walking into or currently living with. Also, I would say that we are to demonstrate love and humility by speaking with patience and gentleness. Proverbs 25, 15 again tells us, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. 
This is where the word of God gives us such power and effort because so many times people will respond with, you mean I can't do anything about this? I have to just keep taking it. I'm a welcome mat. You mean I can't stand it? Confrontation done biblically can be gentle but powerful. That there's action involved in being godly. And so what Paul has been demonstrating here is that confrontation is painful. But on the receiving end of the confrontation, so being the confronter puts you in the driver's seat. But there's this painful recipient, this this person who's having to go through this introspection who's not in the driver's seat. This person may be in the trunk, maybe not even allowed in the car because they're in such hot water. And that is painful to receive that confrontation. It's painful based on what Paul is going to say the Corinthian believers did when he had to talk them down, when he had to rebuke them and correct them. And here's what he says. This is where Paul turns into an incredible cheerleader. Don't picture pom-poms and frilly skirts. It's just a terrible image. Paul becomes a great champion of the children and the faith that he's raised up when he, when he gets into this territory. So we're back in 2 Corinthians 7 in verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Or that phrase could be, um, you, you, you suffered a godly grief so that at the end of the process, there was really no realized loss. You only gained because of the grief that you suffered. Verse 10, for godly grief produces, and my brothers and sisters, it did produce in you a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For, and this is the cheerleading. This is where the pom-poms come out and, and Paul starts getting kind of all uh, uh, wrapped around the axle and so excited and he's so proud of these people. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have, think about what all we've said about the Corinthians in the first letter and most of the second so far. At every point you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. All they've heard from Paul for the most part was correction because their behavior was so drastically outside the will of God. First Corinthians is full of correction that you're like, it shouldn't even be. Paul even said, I, I wouldn't even name these offenses on the world. And I have to say them to the church of Jesus Christ. And so he's going hard at them. He's correcting them. He gets to this point at the end of chapter seven or partway through. And he says, but you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. What a relief it would have been for them to hear this. What a weight off of their shoulders. They probably felt like, man, we have done so much wrong and there's no way he'd ever take us back. And even though they expressed through Titus, no, we get it. We, we, we want to respond appropriately to the, to the letter that he sent to hear it back from him that says, I get it. You guys are different. You've changed. Lamentations three verse 40 says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. This is what they did. 
Isn't God's grace so abundant and so merciful that even though you're wicked like the Corinthians, that you could change your ways, you could, you could repent, you could ask for forgiveness. And, and more than Paul's encouragement, but the God of heaven says, you've proven yourselves innocent in the matter. Why? How did they get there? It's because of this godly grief. And we'd say, well, no, God's not supposed to be in anything that's sad or sorrowful, but apparently he is. Godly grief is a remorse from losing God's approval. It's waking up to the reality. He's no longer shining his favor on my life because of my behavior and my actions. Jesus had told his hearers in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. I think this is part of what he's talking about here. Paul gives them a list. He says, this is how you showed up. Now, if you're not in the driver's seat in confrontation, if you're in the trunk, because of the offenses you've created, or you've been in the trunk, which is all of us, we've all sinned, we've all been in error, we've all done damage to our relationships and needed the confronting of the Holy Spirit. Look at this list, and here's what I want you to do. Take inventory. Some of these things you might go, okay, I've done that, I've done that. But some of these things you're going to go, that is not me. That's the, that's the key missing ingredient in how I've, I've just said I'm sorry. And so often what we do is we say, hey, I'm a changed person. Or I said I'm sorry. What's your problem? Why can't you get on the bandwagon of forgiving me? Here's what Paul says that they needed to go through in order for him to respond with, you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. He says that they were earnest about this. There was a seriousness of purpose and they were so indignant. They were so um, uh, on fire about their response to this that they rejected indifference. That they weren't going to be, eh, this could go either way. I'm not sure. I mean, to you, you might say I did something wrong. Others would say it wasn't that. They said, no, no, it was black and white. I was wrong in this. I'm earnest about this. I'm eager to clear myself, uh, to clear myself of blame. I, I want to prove, Paul, that I'm loyal to you. I would never want my reputation to continue to be hindered by the behavior I just conducted. And as I said, they were indignant. They were, they were angry towards the offense that they themselves caused. And then here's what happened because there was a whispering campaign. There were those that were influencing them to reject Paul, to reject his teachings, to reject the true, true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what, what, they, what they started doing is they were upset at themselves. I can't believe I was walked into that trap. I can't believe I, I spewed the same venom. And then they started looking at the people that started it. And they said, but we're also upset with them. We're not going to accept them in our fellowship anymore. We're not going to allow them to continue to infect uh, like a cancer in our church. That there is this teaming up of the right, which produced a, a dismissal of the wrong. They expressed the appropriate fear of God's judgment. They, they were fearful of how Paul would respond to their behavior. They were alarmed over their actions. Think about how many sorries you've heard and how much alarm is missing from the apology. They were longing now that they were making headway on this. Now that they could see the light, they just wanted to be in Paul's presence. And they started to have this longing for his for his friendship and his kinship again. And I love how the the King James Version actually says that um, uh, more than longing, they, they, it refers to almost as a vehement desire. You think about the intensity, like I've got to be with Paul. He's my man. I got to I got to support him. I want to whatever you say, Paul, need me to wash the windows, want me to sweep, whatever you I'm in. What do we do? He said they expressed zeal, this concern for their potential punishment. Man, I hope I don't get what's coming to me. 
I hope he shows mercy. I hope this church will take us back in. I hope we can right the ship. There's this zeal towards us. And part of the original language is really interesting in this because it has something to do with heat, which is really strange. You say zeal, you picture like just energy and, 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 and go after it. But, but there's this heat that is directed towards like cranking up the furnace on your enemy. That the zeal is so passionate that it's hot to be near. And it's actually also used in referring to the jealousy of a spouse. That appropriate jealousy that says you will not invade my marriage. And that heat going more towards the, than an enemy or someone who's trying to infiltrate. That's the zeal that Paul says your repentance has produced. He says, what punishment? In other words, what, what self-inflicting punishment, what readiness to see justice done that you would, that you would want revenge on these bad behaviors, that you would want your church to be vindicated from, from being just washed down the drain. Paul, we're not done. We promise we can get this right. More than saying, I'm sorry. More than saying, my bad. These folks responded in the most humble, zealous, complete way in their confession and in their repentance. Paul was overwhelmed by the evidence. He says, you have proven yourselves made innocent. Not that you've always been. You have righted the ship. You are now innocent of all of those charges because of your repentance. You see, introspection is painful. It's not easy. But godly grief produces that in God's people. A worldly grief is something that might show up in tears. It might show up in self-pity. But it's really a a remorse for losing the world's approval, not God's. I always find it interesting when judges ask in a courtroom, they'll say, do you feel any remorse for your actions? I know they have to ask that to some extent because a lot of people are just ignorant enough to not say, yeah, of course. But, but the feelings of remorse is not what's being weighed out here. Because we can still have a worldly grief that feels terrible about the way things went. It's what I feel terrible about. Because things aren't going my way. Because now I'm alienated. Because now I'm out of the house or anything. So now I feel terrible. But a godly remorse, a godly sorrow produces all those other things. And it's obvious to the person who's been offended. I get it. You're innocent. You're different. You're new. I want to make just a couple quick points and we have to wrap this up in just a couple minutes. Verse 12. This is the surprise that I was really encouraged by. Paul says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. Or or we could also say it wasn't just for the sake of correcting the one who did the wrong. This goes back to something that we covered earlier in the letter when we started this process early in their their year. There was someone who offended the church. They had to deal with him. They put him out. And then he said, it's time to bring him back in. It's time to restore him. He says, "Uh, I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to who? To you in the sight of God. Paul says, I wrote what I wrote to hold a mirror up to you to see you actually do really care about these things. 
You love the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, you're encouraged by my ministry. I know you get those things, but you've just wandered astray. You've started to have, we said a few weeks ago, these pagan associations. You've started warming up to a weird crowd. You started to hear these deceitful little things and it's straying you away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I wrote these things to remind you who you were and I'm so excited, so thrilled that it worked. Paul isn't saying, I wrote these things to you so that you'd feel bad. Or I wrote these things to you that you would appreciate me all over again. He says, I wrote these things so that you would look in the mirror and go like, oh, what are we thinking? We're not these people. This isn't what we care about. This isn't what we do. Imagine the shepherding heart that comes from the apostle Paul, that he had the foresight to think this is what these people need. What do you and I aim for in conflict? Do we just see it as an inconvenience we have to deal with? I'm sick of the icky feeling, so I got to get over this. We're going to make sure we're good with each other. Do I just want a neutral compromise? If I can get out of this in a win-win, I'm good. Am I trying to just win a contest? What if my aim was not just for a conflict-free relationship, but for that which was best for the person I'm in that relationship with and they're standing before the Lord, that I cared about that more than anything else? Quickly, let's wrap up this section. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, for all this, this is why we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the tapping heels of Titus. He's in the back as I'm writing this letter and he's freaking out. They repented. They repented. He's so relieved because his spirit has been refreshed by you all for whatever boasts I made to him about you. I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true. So also our boasting before Titus has proved true. He's proving and he's going on record by saying, I sent Titus saying this is going to work out. I knew you guys would do this. I knew you would repent. And he's just so relieved because he had to deliver the ugly letter. He wasn't sure what he was walking into. And you guys are so gracious to him. And you just said, Titus, we're so sorry. Please convey to Paul how sorry we are. And that he's back there doing cartwheels. His affection in verse 15 for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What a turnaround. I'm impressed because I know the way I handle the, uh, the kiss and make up phase of relationships. I'm impressed that it took Paul seven chapters of doing good homework and under, under, uh, uh, under the, uh, the radar screen shepherding work that he did, that it took seven chapters for him to say, I get it and we're good. He knew that there was so much more to solidify with them, so much more they needed to see. And then he, they get to that point, and I would have loved to have been in the room as they were reading that and, and feeling the healing that was coming in the relationship as a result of reading that. So, real quickly, two pieces of homework for you. This season, as we're going into whatever you're walking into, knowing that none of us will be able to avoid conflict, whether it be around the turkey table or whether it just be after we get through the holidays and we get back to work and all those kinds of things. When facing conflict, ask this question, what is the opportunity here for God to work? Not how do I get out of this? How do I avoid it? How do I feel better about this? How do they, how do I make them happy with me? What's the opportunity here for God to work? 
Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live passively with all. It does not say that, does it? It says live peaceably with all. In order to achieve peace, you have to accomplish some things. You have to move in. You have to confront. You have to be prepared to forgive. Passivity is the equivalence of peace in the world today. Paul told the Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you're in the trunk, because you're not in the driver's seat on this one, you're in the bad, you're in the wrong. When being confronted or you know you need to be, ask, what are the areas I've failed in this? If I'm taking inventory of that list in 2 Corinthians 7, what are the pieces that I've fallen down on? What are the pieces that I haven't internalized? What are the pieces I haven't taken to heart? What are the things that that offended person needs to see coming from me that is so clear and obvious that they say, you've proven yourselves innocent in this. And if I don't have assurance that that's there, then it's on me to continue to work harder at that. That's the penance I pay for the crime I've committed. Now, isn't that a fun way to talk about Thanksgiving and Christmas and everything? But I think it's so important for us because of what we're walking through. I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be um, um, moving in with, with strategy. I have a team of men that met with me this morning and we prayed about some of the marriage conflicts. We prayed about some of these things that are going on so that this message could be effective in your lives going forward. And so I pray that it does. Um, would you please uh, stand and then we'll close our time in prayer. I'm going to ask the men as quickly as possible to dismiss out into our hub area gather around the center. Guys, don't be shy to take some of the chairs around the tables and everything to help move in. And ladies, uh, just stay in this room and Maureen will come up and present to you. Lord, I thank you, God, for what you've done in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for the resolution that we get to see in the scriptures, hoping and believing, Lord, that that awaits us as well. So be pleased with our attention this morning, Lord. Be pleased with your word. May you use it to great effect in our lives. Bless these folks here, Lord, as they go into this season, not knowing what's around the corner or, or moving through awkward times, or maybe this year is different from every other year past for the various reasons. And I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them. I pray, Lord, that you would give him hope and solutions to these problems. May your spirit be evident in them in Jesus' name. Amen.